So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 12, I have a special message on why you need to serve in children's ministry. Oh, no, that's... (laughs) Kind of, where it's actually entitled Living Sacrificially, but most of you who are familiar with the Scriptures even a little know where this passage is going. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this together? Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 12 by saying, Therefore I urge you, brothers... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We all have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to that faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. And if it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. And if it is leadership, let him govern diligently. And if it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be the one who would open your word to us to our hearts and to our minds because then we know, Lord, that we will have an understanding that comes from you and not just from man. Lord, you promise to lead us by the very anointing that you have given us when we gave our life to you. So bless this time, we ask, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As a Bible teacher... From this point forward, the book of Romans gets much easier. I will not even pretend to tell you that much of the theology that Paul outlines in those first uh, 11 chapters 
is gnarly stuff. It's challenging. And the greatest challenge for me week after week is how do I kind of summarize and simplify because these are portions of Scripture that actually some scholars dedicate their entire life studying and expositing. But on the other hand, as a follower of Jesus, it begins to get much harder. Chapter 12 is where we move from the theory into reality. We go from theology into actuality, from strategy into actually starting, from discussing to doing, or as James put it so simply, from being simply a hearer of his word and now becoming a doer. I love the way the 20th century New Testament translated that passage in James 1.22. He said, do not merely listen to the message, deceiving yourself, put it into practice. So metaphorically speaking, we've come to the banks of the Jordan River and now we need to get our feet wet we need to be willing to step into the raging torrent of the living the Christian life and cross over to God's land of promise. The land of promise was not heaven. The land of promise was where they could begin to both serve God and enjoy the blessings that come as a consequence. We need to stand where Abraham stood when we're told in Genesis 22 that God tested him. It was only then God said to him and to us, that now I know that you fear God. It was only when he put Isaac actually on the altar that God could say, I know now that you truly fear me. Now, I can't count how many times people have said to me over the years, God knows my heart, and certainly he does. In fact, he knows it better than we know it ourselves. But the reason, for one, some reason, I don't completely understand the fact that God knows only about us in part in the sense that when it comes to actual time and space, when we surrender ourselves to God, somehow God can say, now I know. That if there is no active part of my faith, if there is no work that comes as a consequence of my faith, then James told us that your faith may very possibly be a dead faith. It may be a concept, as my son used to put it, he said, you may be Christianized, but you may not be converted. You see, until we put it into practice, there's no way, as Paul told us in this passage, to prove what God's will is. That our living our faith is really the proof, the, the ability of God to express himself. Because until then, it's just talk. It's, it's good talk, but it's still just talk. And the truth is, when it comes to this idea of sacrificing our bodies, we all balk. Paul explained why when he wrote to the Ephesians. He said in Ephesians 5.29, he says, No one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and he cares for it. The King James translated, he nourishes it and he cherishes it. In fact, Thayer in his lexicon simply said, he cherishes it with tender love. It was even Job who actually Satan, Job speaks of, who says a man will give all his life for his own life. Interesting perspective. Now I know it's popular today for people to look in the mirror and say, I hate my body. Truth be told, what we hate is not our bodies, but we hate the fact that other people aren't as crazy about it as we are. 
I guarantee you that if short, shot, and shapeless becomes popular, we won't feel bad about the fact that we're not toned, tanned, and terrific. We'll be able to pass on that because I, I remember first time I ever went to India and in a country that really starvation was a living reality and malnutrition was everywhere. That the mark of beauty was not being thin but rather was being what we might call obese. In fact, I was shocked to open up a newspaper and see the models showing the latest uh, fashions of that country, and they were all rather large. The men had large stomachs, and I thought, this is a country I could live in. <laughs> I mean, this, this would be, that, the idea of getting sh in shape is totally redefined. <laughs> it depends. And over there, being a pear is really cool. So, but really, what we really struggle with is not the fact that we think that we don't look the way we should, but rather through the culture we know that other people don't look at us and say, wow, that is a beautifully large stomach. You know, it's... Um, now, some people hate their bodies because they believe that's the spiritual thing that we're supposed to say. Like St. Francis of Assisi who called his body brother ass. In fact, he said he found it so often to be stubborn and it was always absurd, just like a donkey. And didn't Paul tell us in Romans 7 that uh, I know, he says, that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. And so we've developed kind of a theology of self-hatred when it comes to the body or the idea that if I'm a spiritual man, I should be really doing everything I can to show that I don't really care about what I look like, smell like, sound like, act like. But Paul isn't referring to the body. What he's talking about in the context is my sin nature that lives inside of my body, that often it dominates, often it expresses itself in unhealthy and controlling ways, but nonetheless, it's not the body per se, which is merely the vehicle that God has given us to move through this particular environment, but rather it's that sin nature that lies in there. Jesus put it very simply when he said in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart the wicked things express themselves through the body. I do not hate my body. I hate my sin nature. And that's an appropriate perspective, that I, I don't hate my body. I'm thankful that I have one because the option is not the most positive experience. But the thing that I hate is that there is this sin nature that lives in me, that lives in you, that seems to so often find a way of expressing itself and dominating the way my body functions. And I think it's important for us to understand that the truth is God loves your body. And what's even more amazing, God wants my body. God wants your body. That's why he says, present it to me, offer it to me. Because your body is the perfect vehicle that's beautifully designed to fulfill God's purposes in this world, to make his invisible attributes visible, to let the very heart of God become knowable and evident to the world in which we live. It's the reason why the psalmist instructed us in Psalm 96 by saying, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness that God has a beauty that he wants to emanate from within you, that he wants to adorn the world with, and it's called the beauty of holiness. 
Now, that's very different from the concept we often hear because in our culture, first of all, we've tended to paint holiness as being not beautiful. The, you know, Saturday Night Live just thrilled people with the church lady, and she was supposed to be this emanation of, of what it means to be holy when, in fact, she was just the octopus. It was a sickening, sanctimonious judgmentalism. But the beauty of holiness is that which displays the true character, the true heart of God. And he says, we, when we worship God in truth, there is a beauty that comes out of us that is not dependent upon youth or vitality or toning or tanning or just being all around terrific, but it comes from the very essence of God himself. That that is the objective that I should be pursuing in my life. And the way in which we can display the beauty of holiness is staggeringly simple. Again, Paul tells us, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Literally, place your body at God's disposal. That's what he means. It's, it's simply giving it to him and saying, God, here is my life. Here is my body. You see, what we fail to recognize is that body that you have been given is what connects you with the material world. It's where time and space begin to interact with the spiritual man or woman that you are on the inside. And God wants to speak into the material world. Eastern religions and Gnosticisms and New Age thoughts are all talking about the material world as being unreal or not being good. God says, I created it just like I created you. I gave you a material body so that you could engage with the material world. I made food taste good so you'd eat it, you know, including salt and sugar, right? I move by my Holy Spirit in many ways, and one of them is caffeine. There's lots of things that God does in the material world that are good, so that when I look out on an evening like last night, and I just go, this is so amazing. It's such a beautiful moment for my wife and I to take a walk in the dark. It was, it was wonderful. It was magnificent. When, John, when James talks about his son having the mentality of a squirrel, he needs to meet my squirrels. <laughs> we have an ongoing contest right now to keep them out of the bird feeder, and they stagger my imagination and their creativity. <laughs> they got the, they, I got the genius squirrels at my house. I can't believe what these guys are able to do, but I digress. <laughs> they should go on Ninja Warrior. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Dude. Anyway, but he goes on to say, this is what we are called to do, is just simply say, God, here it is. He doesn't say, you need to design a program and submit it with a prospectus, and I'll decide whether or not this is a usable project that I want to become involved in. No, he says, just put your life at my disposal, and what you'll see is I will give evidence, I will give proof, I'll give validation that you are my worshiper. But you see, such decisions require that I recognize that my body does not even exist simply to serve my impulses or my passions. And not in denial of my impulses or not in denial of my passions, but that's not its primary purpose. 
its primary purpose is, is to serve God. Your body was created to worship God and to be available to God. In fact, it doesn't even belong to you. God went out and purchased your body. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 and again in chapter 7. He said, you were bought at a price. The image is of a man going into the slave market and purchasing a slave out of captivity and setting him or her free. You were bought at a price. And what was that price? It was the price of Jesus and his life on the cross. He says, therefore, he says, therefore, we draw this conclusion. If the life that I have and I now live is a consequence of him giving his life for me, if that freedom I know is the freedom that he purchased with his life, what is the thing that I naturally will conclude about that? And he says, therefore, honor God with your body. Just give it to him. There's nothing more honorable than say, Lord, here's, here's my body. Here's my use it the way you want. Again, he says in chapter 7, you were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. That's an interesting statement. There are many ways that we can become the slaves of men, if you think about it. But in the end, it really comes down to this one thing, and that's what he talked about in verse 2 when he said, conform no longer to the pattern of this world. How do I become the slaves of men? I, I just simply mimic what's all around me. And part of that is just happens because of the environment we grow up in. There are things that you struggle with in your life. I think the old King James in Hebrew 12 referred to them as besetting sins. I always like that phrase. Things that kind of are natural paths of sin for us to go down because we kind of grew up around them and knew them. And there's every one of us that has some kind of context in our life like that where it's easy to go there. And if we're wise, we've barricaded off those areas of our life and said, I don't even want to go there or think about it. But there's this, these natural attractants that we all have that we have to battle. But what he says is, when you present your body to him, you're making a decision that you're giving him permission to begin to conform you to his likeness instead of you working so hard to conform yourself to some attractive likeness that you see in the world. I took various paraphrase translations and kind of cobbled them together where he simply says, don't be so well adjusted to your culture and its behavior and its customs that without thinking about it, it squeezes you into its mold. You see, twice in Isaiah and then again in, in Jeremiah, the prophet said that God is the potter, you are the clay, and he is the one who is supposed to mold us, that we don't argue with him how he's shaping and molding us, but we do. And so simply he says that that's really what's supposed to be happening, that when I give myself to God, I'm really giving him a lump of clay and saying, you can make me into what you want me to be. And the real question becomes, who is your potter? Who is the one that is shaping and molding your life? And literally, it's whoever you have given yourself to. You give your body to it. This is why when Paul speaks about sexual immorality, he's saying what you're doing is you're giving your body to someone who you have no right to give your body to. 
And so consequently, he says, that will shape your life. It will twist it. It will distort it. It will make it into something that you will not be happy with, will not bring you joy or pleasure long term. So there is an option, and the option is to simply say, God, I just give my life, I give you my body, and give you permission to do what you want. You see, the easiest thing in the world to do is to go along just to get along. When Jesus said in Matthew 17, or 7, excuse me, he said there, there's this narrow gate and there is this wide path. And he says, you have to decide which one you're going to go down. The narrow gate is difficult because it's a narrow path. It doesn't have unlimited options. It's focused. It's intentional. It's directive. Many people would just kind of like to go with the flow, just kind of end up wherever we happen to end up. But the warning that Jesus makes is simple. He says, if you decide that you're going to follow Jesus, then you're going to find that your life is going to stand out and it's going to stand apart just like his did. And your body may suffer just as his body did, which is why, again, in Matthew 16, 24, I'm reading the Phillips version. He says, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all right to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. What that translates into is just giving him your body. And it's amazing to me because have you ever found yourself in this mental gymnastics where you sit there and try to convince yourself that you're totally surrendered to God but he doesn't really want your body so you can do whatever you want with it? Or am I the only one who has these kind of thoughts? (laughs) Oh Lord, I just take whatever you want of me. Just don't ask me to be nice to that person. (laughs) Do whatever you want, Lord, but don't ask me to help him do that in his yard. You know, it's it's amazing things sometimes. But thus begins what I call the inglorious journey of downward mobility. The sinful nature and the sinful world that we live in sing in perfect unison. Their chorus and their harmony is, is amazing. Live for self. Take care of number one. Seek the best. Get the most. Taste the finest. Be the first. Be free. Have fun. Go with the flow. But the problem is that God is not in the self-advancement business. He's not seeking to reform what you are. He's seeking to transform literally to change you from what you are into something that is completely different. And this is where people struggle sometimes. If you are the tan, tone, and terrific individual, and God says, I want you to follow me, and I want you to give me your body, you may struggle saying, but wait a minute, I'm on this amazing track right now. I'm really getting my act together. Things are really, really moving ahead wonderfully. And I'm afraid to say, God, do what you want, because you might ask me to do something that I don't want. That's the conflict, isn't it? You see, when we ask Jesus into our hearts, what he did was begin a new creative, transformative work on the interior of our lives, of our bodies. Instantaneously, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There, there's instantaneously this thing that begins to percolate on the inside of who you are. I, I trust that if you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. I know it was true for me at least. I know the moment I got up off my knees and started walking away without anybody informing me or disciplingly or talking to me, have not even read the Bible or listened to a Bible study, I knew that my life was on a new track. I just knew that. I knew that this was not the same. Everything was different. Everything had become new. My life had been reordered, redefined, and it began a whole process of rediscovery of who I was as a person. Immediately he began this prophecy that Paul calls to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These, these, these words are, are very specific in the original because they talk about transforming as this permanent change. Being renewed implies a complete change. It's, it's permanent and it's complete. It's not partial. It's not incremental. When he talks about the mind, he says, you see the world. The lens by which you begin to look at the world is different. Because we all understand this, that the eye does not really see. What the eye does is simply receive data which the mind then processes. And it all depends on how the mind understands the world in itself as to how it processes the information. So that if your mind is set on the idea that my life belongs to me and it should be lived the way I want it and it should always feel good and never feel bad and always be leading to higher and higher levels of accomplishment, achievement, of recognition, of praise and applause and so forth and so on, that when God begins to send other data, you're going to take it and spin it around. So that even in the church, we can create theologies that says basically... Uh, you're always going to be healthy, you're always going to be wealthy, and you're always going to be wise if you have enough faith. When in fact, both history and scripture give us a different story. Sometimes yes, and sometimes absolutely not. And how we understand the way that life comes at us is based not so much upon what's going on outside of us as to how we decide that we're going to understand it in our hearts. And he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of you so that you will not be relying just as simply upon your own ability to logic your way through the moment, but rather you receive, as Paul said to the Corinthians, the mind of Christ the understanding of Christ, that you began to see the moments of your life through his lens so that you began to interpret circumstances not just simply in the context of time but in the broader context of eternity. It's not just, well, what will be the consequences if I do X, Y, Z and think about next week, next month, five years down the road, but rather you're saying, in the moment when I stand before the presence of the God of the universe... What will his judgment be about this decision that I'm making right now? Now, I don't mean to overwhelm you and make it so grandiose that you're sitting there feverishly trying to decide what to do. I, I was there as a young Christian. I became so intent on doing God's will, I literally would walk up to a four-way stop or light and stand there and say, God, which direction am I supposed to go? 
And I dithered. I literally stood there waiting. It says walk. Was that you, God, telling me to walk? Or is that telling you? Or maybe I'm supposed to stop. No, I'm, and I'm sure that people around me thought, whoa, you know, I was in Salem, Oregon. The state hospital was just down the street. <laughs> and I realized that part of walking by faith is trusting that God is driving. <laughs> Even though I don't know where we're going. I go to foreign countries all the time. I get in taxi cabs to take me someplace. I have no idea if they're taking me there or not. But I have to trust that God's in control. Life is like that. But what happens as God begins to change your way of looking at your life, that in Christ things that uh, become both, that seem to be unthinkable, Things that seem to be unattainable suddenly become attainable and essential. Ironically, not one of the things that God leads us to do or that he even speaks, as Paul goes on in the chapter, to really give us some kind of examples. He lists about 30 different things that are the manifestation of a life that has been surrendered to God. These are behaviors that God says will come out of you when you give your body to me. These are the kind of things that I'll be putting in front of you. And as I looked at all of them, I realized none of them are native to me. None of them are native to my nature. Oh, we may like to flatter ourselves by saying, well, I'm that generous guy, I'm that hospitable person. No, the truth of the matter is we do all of those things in rather conditional ways. I give if I can afford. I show hospitality if it's not too inconvenient, which is actually an oxymoron. So that I break these things into really three major categories of behavior. Three ways in which God says, I will ask you to lay your life down. The first thing he says in verse 3 is, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with a measure of faith God has given you. I like the way Phillips put it. He said, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or of your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities. Don't cherish an exaggerated idea. You know what cherishing an exaggerated idea is? It's fantasizing that you are Iron Man. It's, it's fantasizing that you've still got it when my kids told me, Dad, you never had it. You know, it's, it's what lies behind the, the toupee and the red sport tar. You know, it's, it's this idea that we begin to exaggerate something about ourselves in order to build ourselves up. And we live in a culture that actually teaches us that you need to have a positive mental attitude. Tell children from the earliest age they can do or become anything they want. You know, <laughs> you can become or do, and it's just simply not true. I will never even come close to Stephen Curry or LeBron James or Michael Jordan or the list is very long. These guys were born with certain DNA uh, uh, in, uh, leanings that just do not exist in me. They're given hands that can wrap around a ball. They're given bodies that can move at an amazing pace in directions that my body doesn't even recognize. I can't be anything I want. 
but I can be everything that God wants me to be. And the real challenge, the real concern that we should have in our life isn't that how high can I go, but rather do I reach the extent what God has called for me to be? Because the bigger danger in life is not that I don't become enough, it's become I become far less. It's that adage that I climb to the top of whatever wall the ladder is leaning and I get up there and realize it's the wrong wall. That's the real tragedy. And how do I know which is the right wall and the wrong one? It's by putting my life in God's hands and saying, God, you lead, you direct, you open the door and you close the door. I trust you with my life, with my future. I trust you with everything. That's what it means to give him your body. Because when you talk about giving him your body, you're trusting God with your everything. So that Paul said, you know, it really begins with giving up this kind of exalted, in fact, I love the way he says, he says, use sober judgment. It's kind of a, an emotional intoxication. It's the kind of emotional intoxication or arrogance that we display when somebody offends us and we say things to ourselves or even to others, I can't believe they did that to me. How dare they treat me that way? Who do they think they are dealing with? And the answer usually comes back, they don't know, they don't care. <laughs> you know. It's like a friend of mine told me one time, he said, <laughs> flying back from London on British Air, and the guy in front of me, this Brit, was complaining to the stewardess because they served him tea in a plastic cup. And he's one of those kind of guys that's all he could take, and he could take no more. And he said, man, get a clue. You're in coach. <laughs> it's like, of course they're serving you a plastic cup. What did you expect? You want a ceramic one? Pay a, more, a couple more thousand and you can have it in first class. But it's almost this idea, how dare they treat me this way? How bare they do that? I can't believe you did that to me. And, and heaven's answer is why not? That we begin to realize that there's nothing that touches our life but at first goes through the hands of God. There's nothing we encounter that God doesn't allow to be an encounter for a purpose that we may not immediately understand but during, down the road it's going to become increasingly clear why God allowed you to suffer or to be hurt or to struggle or to go through that loss. It's all about what he's doing in you and it's the consequence of having made the decision, Lord, here I am, just do what you want with me. Your will be done. You see, because what's wonderful about that, and you may be thinking, I don't see anything wonderful about this. What's wonderful about it is that bad stuff's going to happen in your life anyway. It's just guaranteed. But when bad stuff happens on your watch because you were the captain of a ship, you were the, the guy in the, in the, in the uh, control room of the, uh, of the ship that went shipwreck, I mean, at that moment, there's only one person to blame, and that's you and you yourself. But when you entrust your life to God and painful things happen, you can step back and say, you know what? Satan certainly meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That's why it's here right now. 
And so in that moment, suddenly you have hope, you have joy, you have confidence that God is going to work all of these things together for the good because you have already given him yourself. And if you're sitting there saying, I got myself in this place because I didn't surrender myself, you can start right now. Okay, now you can have it, God. It's kind of like when I used to work on cars. I'd work on them, and then they really didn't work. Then I gave him the mechanic. He fixed them. I said, here, you fix it. Because this is way beyond my capacity. Because I, I changed out that blue thingy twice, and it still doesn't work. And at that moment, you just, God becomes responsible. And that's why he says, when you think of yourself not as the most important person, but rather as part of the whole, he says, then you serve, you teach, you encourage it, you contribute, you give generously, you govern diligently, and you share and forgive mercifully and cheerfully. But secondly, he says, not only does it create a humility in us, it, it creates a sincerity about us. And the word here, sincere, is fascinating. It's because it means really to be free from any kind of pen, pen, uh, pretense or any kind of deceit, that there's a genuineness. It doesn't imply that you're perfect, without flaw, but it also implies that you're real. You're not trying to prove something or be something that you're not. And this becomes a challenge because we live in one of the most insincere and disingenuous worlds that I think has ever existed. Maybe just simply because of communication. But we look around us and what do we see everywhere? We see duplicity and we see dishonesty. And we're going into a political season where we are going to be feeded to that to the point where you're just going to not want to turn the television on anymore unless you like that kind of stuff. But in contrast, he says, if you're really giving me your life, then what happens is you make decisions like you're going to love what's good. You're not going to care for what's not. You're going to be devoted with brotherly love to other people. You're, you're going to be seeking to honor people, not to dishonor them. You're going to be energetic in how you approach your life. There, there's going to be a joyfulness. There's going to be a patience. I wish they'd leave that one out. There's a faithfulness. He said there is a prayerfulness and there is a hospitableness about you. And I touch on that hospitality because, we, again, we, we think about how, oh, I just love to show hospitality. And you do as long as it's affordable and convenient and doesn't last more than three days. But it goes on beyond that and suddenly it's costly and inconvenient and a difficulty and suddenly our hearts change. I don't mind serving as long as it doesn't require me to serve. I don't really mind giving as long as it doesn't require me to actually give. I'd love to talk about it. And one of the sad things is I see we're, we're coming into a generation of people who love to talk about serving and giving and all these altruistic things, but and it's all over Facebook and Instagram and other things, but in terms of the actual doing of it, there seems to be a problem. It's almost like if I just post it, it's the same as actually having done it. 
And for those of you who are a little confused by that statement, it's not. It's not. And then thirdly, he said we need to be empathetic, to have empathy. Humility, sincerity, empathy. I said at the beginning, none of these things are native to my nature. Yeah, ask my wife. I do not wake up in the morning humble. I wake up in the morning, it's all about me. <laughs> how I feel, how long it's going to take me to crawl to the coffee maker. It's all about me. To be sincere, well, I'd like to think that I'm being genuine and honest, but I'm like you. I catch myself in shading the truth, edging away from the exact avoiding what might be, you know, returning something and they're saying, is there any problem? And you say, no, it's, it's fine. I'm sure somebody else can buy it and return it as well. It's easy. And I'd like to think that I'm an empathetic person. Well, I tell you this, one thing I do know, I'm extremely empathetic towards myself. But when he says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, he's talking about this inability to understand and share in the feelings of another person where you're actually making a conscious choice to enter into their pain. Now, I'll tell you, uh, from the first days I was a pastor, I started doing funerals. And especially serving in a large church, there were a lot of funerals, and oftentimes people didn't have a pastor or whatever, and they wouldn't, you know, and I was a low man on the totem pole, so I got the gig. And walking into all sorts of unknown situations, you don't know the people or any of the dynamics that are behind it. And it's, it's, it's a challenge, but I felt like I always rose to the challenge. I did a good job. I didn't say anything that embarrassed or made anybody feel awkward or, you know, come after me. But the thing is, when I begin to lose people close to me, when our family members and our, our, our friends begin to die and we begin to feel the personal sense of pain and loss and sorrow, when we begin to know grief, I found something changed on the inside of me when I did a funeral that to this day I cannot do a funeral without crying. I mean, I don't blubber all over the podium, but it, it, it chokes me up because I feel what these people are feeling. I know exactly what this emotion is they're going through right now. It changed how, what I say because I have a whole different perspective, and that's what empathy is. You have entered into certain experiences. And part of the honesty is when you can't empathize to say to somebody, I've never been through what you're through and I, I don't really know how to answer that. I don't know how to explain that. I can tell you what the Bible says. But it is more than that. It's, just, it's this idea that we're willing to be sympathetic. Paul goes on talking about being what I call touchable. That we're not so removed that people can't touch us with their feelings and with their issues, their problems? Are there people in your life you see them coming and you go the other direction? I'll never forget my dad talking to me about his coffee group when I used to visit him years ago and he'd take me down to the coffee shop with all of his buddies and had this group of ex-World War II veterans, all military guys, you know, careerists, and 
and they would spend a couple hours drinking coffee and solving all the world's problems on a daily basis. And it always had something to do with getting rid of the guy in office and bringing in somebody new. But I remember we, we came in, we sat down. He would always take me to be with the guys. He wanted to show me off to his buddies. Uh, he told him I was a lawyer. He was so embarrassed at what I did. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, seriously, no, he really did. <laughs> he lied about what I did. Uh, but nonetheless, but uh, <laughs> I love that guy, man. He was, he's more, he's, my dad says, 10 minutes after you're dead, they forget about you. We're still talking about him. <laughs> What a character. But anyway. And then this one guy came up, and my dad goes, oh, let's go this way. And he walked away, and I said, what's the issue? And he says, oh, his son was killed in Vietnam, and he just can't stop talking about it. And none of us want to talk about that. I said, Dad, then who does he talk to? Well, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And Well, I know my own dad's problem. He can, he'd say he'd seen so much of that death and blood and gore that he just didn't even want to think about it. But see, empathy says, you know, I don't want to be touched by this, but I'll let you touch me. Sometimes it's, it's literally a touch. Do you know that a lot of elderly men go to get their hair cut once a week, not because their hair is too long, but because it's the only time anybody ever touches them? Sometimes touch can be literal. He's talking about being peaceable, that we're not looking for fights. That we try to be understanding, we, we try to be forgiving. And when Paul says these things, he wants us to understand this is more than what God wills or what God wants. He wants to know this is really what makes it work. That when we submit ourselves to these things, we sacrifice ourselves around these kind of challenges, then we begin to test and approve. We give an un unmistakable evidence of the truth and the reality of Christ in our lives. It's when we no longer let the evil in the world overcome us to shape us and form us, but we overcome evil with the good. And it all begins with this issue of sacrifice. You know what the word sacrifice in the English language literally means? It means the act of giving up something of value. It's the act of giving up something of value for the sake of something that you regard to be more important more worthy, more valuable. That's what it means to sacrifice. You're giving up something of value. Your body is this valuable thing that God has given to you. Take care of it. Don't abuse it. <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff. But why? You know, my prayer for my body is, God, keep me healthy so that I can serve you. And when I'm done serving you, then you can do anything you want with it. You can let it die of cancer if you want. You can, whatever you want. But God, in the interim, it's your body. Use it for your glory. Now, I love what Don McClure shared one time where he said, here I am working out on the treadmill and I, I have this stroke while I'm exercising. He says, ends up going blind in one eye and recover from that and then he said the next thing I know is uh, I have a blood vein burst in my lung and, and I'm bleeding out and they're rushing me to the hospital and the doctor's running along the gurney as they're taking me into surgery and he's saying now I just want you to be calm I want you to relax don't, don't stress you know just it's going to be okay we got this taken care of it's okay and he says I looked at him I said doc you don't get it 
My life is in Jesus' hands. If I die, I go home to be Jesus. That's what I've been living for my whole life. It's okay. Just relax, doc. <laughs> He's at the doctor looking at him and says, that's great. Just keep that state of mind. Just keep thinking like that. That's good. That's good. <laughs> but I remember he's telling us this story about this, and he says, you know, when I gave my life to Christ, I said, Jesus, take my body. It belongs to you. He says, I didn't realize he was going to take it one piece at a time. <laughs> Sometimes he does. He just takes one piece at a time. But he only takes it because when he takes it, he adds something to you. He adds something that's more beautiful called holiness. Your deficiencies are only a deficiency in your mind's eye. They give you a capacity that enables you to do something that many people can't do. And I'll let you figure out what that is. Father God, I pray that we would hear your word, your heart, that we would grasp your ways, that we would go away not with just simply a list of things to think about, but we would go away with a deep impression upon our hearts of how you have made us, you've called us, you've chosen us, you've specifically and wonderfully majestically designed us to fulfill your will that when you look at our bodies, you love them. Forgive us for letting the world make us critical and fault-finding instead of celebrating the fact that we are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. But most importantly, Lord, let us just simply say, Lord, I present my body to you for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue together in a short time of response, really, and worship to the Lord, I just invite you to partake of the elements of communion. It's, it's, it is a ritual act. It's a, we call it a biblical sacrament. They're only, sacrament means a sacred thing that you do, a sacred action. And, and uh, there's only two in the Bible. Some groups have many other sacraments, but there are only two in the Bible. One is communion, the other was baptism. Baptism is something that we do once when we get saved. Uh, but communion is something we're told to do as often as we have the opportunity to do it. And essentially, they both say the same thing. When I'm baptized, I'm basically surrendering my life. I'm confessing that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Every time I partake of these elements, I'm confessing that Jesus is the one who paid the price for my sins. Not only was his blood shared, shed, for the payment of my sin, but he gave his body, he presented his body as an offering. And essentially when we partake of the elements, that's what we're saying in response to God. God, here is my body. I give it to you to use for your glory in the way that you want. And I just encourage you to respond. If you want prayer, I'll be up front. There'll be some other people on the wings here, more discreet if you prefer, who will be glad to sit and take some time to pray with you and, and encourage you in whatever thing that God has put in front of your life right now.